Cassius Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, big tech under a new microscope and a requiem for the Yang Gang. But first, the intelligence coup of the century. The Washington Post yesterday published a bombshell report about how a surveillance company used by dozens of countries for decades was secretly owned by the CIA. The upshot here should be obvious. The U.S. was listening to conversations from allies and enemies alike in what might be the largest ever heist of government secrets. The company in question was called Crypto AG and began life as a Swiss maker of code-breaking machines for the U.S. during World War II. But in 1970, it was surreptitiously acquired by the CIA and West German intelligence, and the agencies reportedly controlled almost all of crypto's operations, including things like hiring and tech design and sales targets. But again, this was not a publicly known arrangement, and even many of crypto's own employees had no idea who was really paying their checks. In 1993, German intelligence sold its stake to the CIA, which continued to utilize Crypto AG until selling off its assets in 2018. But during that middle ground, the U.S. used similar techniques to spy on Germany, including a hack of Angela Merkel's phone. Two other things to know. Neither China nor Russia were ever customers of Crypto AG, likely due to suspicions over its ties to the U.S. But the company did manage to collect tons of information between its other clients and Chinese and Russian officials. Second, ending crypto wasn't really about the U.S. no longer thirsting for intel so much as it was the rise of encrypted communications that made crypto's techniques largely obsolete. The bottom line, this was a whole new level of spy games. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Greg Miller, who wrote the Washington Post story in collaboration with German reporter Peter Muller. But first, this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined now by Greg Miller, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for The Washington Post. So, Greg, let's just start with the backstory of your story. Why did you start looking into Crypto AG in the first place? This has been one of the a mystery for many, many years and a, a question mark about the Cold War that a lot of other news organizations have picked at and done quite well with over many years. But In this case, you know, I I can't claim that we launched into an investigation and then turned up these documents. It it ended up being sort of, in a a way, we obtained the documents, and then that drove our reporting, and we spent many months building out the story that you saw in the newspaper this week. When you kind of concluded or, or first real good evidence that the CIA owned crypto, was your reaction personally, oh, well, of course, that makes sense, or were you actually surprised. I was pretty surprised. I mean, we know that the CIA uses front companies and has done so throughout its history, but the scale of this operation was quite staggering, and it was clear even upon very early in reading through these documents. I mean, just the idea that this is an existing company with a thriving business that the CIA steps in and purchases sort of in the middle of its life and then runs it for nearly 50 years, nearly half a century. I've never come across anything like that. 
For those who have not read the story, can you give a sense, kind of some of the higher profile, call them kind of uh, geopolitical situations, I guess you could maybe say, that crypto had a role in helping inform the CIA and for a time West Germany on information about? Yeah, so a lot of it, the history deals more with the 1980s and 90s than the 2000s. So some of it is looking backward a little bit. But what the documents show is that this capability, this operation gave the United States insights into lots of important world events. The Iran hostage crisis, because Iran was buying these machines and the United States was reading all of their communications. The negotiations between Egypt and Israel on a peace accords. The manhunt for Manuel Noriega in Panama. Um, the Iran-Iraq war. The Falklands war between Argentina and the British. In all of these global events, crypto, those countries' use of crypto encryption equipment exposed all of their communications to American spies. You write that, that neither China nor Russia uh, were ever customers of Crypto AG. Obviously, their conversations with customers could have been picked up. But if Russia and China weren't primarily because, as you write, their suspicions over crypto's ties with the U.S., why weren't other governments equally suspicious? You know, I think many governments were suspicious um, for quite a long time, and it's one of the most astonishing things to me that comes through in the documents is how often they failed to act on those suspicions, how often they were talked out of them by essentially CIA operatives. The company would send its executives who knew the truth off to countries, including Argentina, including Iran, and to convince them that their suspicions were baseless. Don't worry about it. You guys are freaking out over nothing. It's not Thing. Don't worry about it. And they would back down. Part of it, though, is because a lot of these countries, at the time at least, didn't necessarily have the wherewithal, like a massive world power like the Soviet Union and China did, to build their own encryption networks. You write that crypto partially, this is your quote, quote, helps explain how the U.S. developed an insatiable appetite for global surveillance and kind of connect the dots from that to what we learned from Edward Snowden several years ago. How do you connect those two, how we get kind of from crypto to what Snowden revealed was happening with the NSA. I think that the crypto story tells us a lot about who we are as a country and what is expected of our intelligence agencies. I mean, this was a capability that allowed the United States to listen in on the world's conversations for 50 years. I mean, we sort of became addicted to that. The technology world is constantly shifting. So crypto's, you know, dominant market position started to deteriorate in the late 1990s as new technologies came online. And the NSA sort of switches targets and starts focusing on all the major American tech powers, Google and Microsoft. It doesn't own those companies, but it's figuring ways out to exploit their penetration of the global market. So crypto teaches us, I think it shows us just how addicted the United States becomes to being able to monitor most of the world. It becomes built into the expectation of U.S. spy services. Going back to kind of the thing you talked about, the Iran hostage situation, etc. You also suggest that it's possible that the U.S. knew more about certain atrocities in the world world, then it led on. You know, often something will happen and months or years later, the government will say, we didn't realize that was actually happening there. Any specific examples of things you think that the revelations about crypto suggest the U.S. knew more about than it led on? I think that when you look at the map, and we ran a map with our story that shows almost all the countries in the world that bought this equipment and therefore was exposed, I mean, there were terrible things happening in many of those places. In Latin America, for example, death squads, assassination campaigns, I mean, people disappearing. And ethnic cleansing campaigns in Eastern Europe. These are things that 
if those countries are all using crypto devices and the United States is listening to these conversations, it has to know what's happening. And you have to wonder when you look back at it, well, what did we do about it? And did we decide not to do anything in part to preserve this intelligence access? Obviously, there's all sorts of rumors about what the Russian government kind of access it has, for example, to Kapersky or you know Huawei in China, even though those are kind of a little bit more obviously tied. Not to crystal ball gaze, but if I had to ask, do you believe that there is some other company that we probably know about that is involved in cybersecurity as a privately held business right now that the U.S. government has a secret piece of? Would you think we do? I, I, uh, I, I would... Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. I mean, look, you, you just used a word here, rumors about Huawei, rumors about Kaspersky. And that was the word that we used about crypto for many years. Well, these and the company would say, look, those are just rumors. Those are baseless rumors. And now we know that they weren't just rumors. I think that it's inevitable that we'll look back on this moment at some point in the future and be confronted with evidence that companies or devices that we assumed were secure were not. They were penetrated and they were... And compromised by someone. Greg Miller, The Washington Post, hell of a story. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is the Federal Trade Commission, which says it plans to review the past 10 years of acquisitions by tech giants Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft. Not just the big deals like Facebook buying Instagram or Microsoft buying LinkedIn, but also the hundreds of smaller transactions that were below the threshold for automatically triggering antitrust review. So three things to know. One, antitrust regulators usually get their way just by threatening to block a deal, but they've been on a recent losing streak when it comes to deep-pocketed big tech. Specifically, state AGs yesterday failed to stop the Sprint T-Mobile merger and the Justice Department in 2018 lost on AT&T Time Warner. Two, the FTC's move comes just days after Republican Senator Josh Hawley proposed to strip the FTC of its antitrust authority altogether, instead wanting to put it in the hands of DOJ. And finally, three, this could be a very lengthy process, maybe even into a new presidential administration. We're talking about tons of small niche acquisitions that involve people who may no longer be at the participating companies, let alone acquired products that have since been mothballed. As such, don't expect it to necessarily do much to change big tech's acquisition strategy because so far, their view is that DC rhetoric on antitrust is more bark than bite. And finally, tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang ended his presidential campaign last night after dismal finishes in Iowa and New Hampshire. So I first met Yang at a tech event in late 2018. He walked up to me, said he was a longtime reader of the newsletter and told me he was running for president. Now, I had never heard of him before and distinctly remember thinking, how do I get out of this conversation with a crazy person who thinks he's running for president? But the more Yang talked to me, the more I realized he did have something new to say, at least in politics. And the next morning he joined this podcast as our first ever presidential candidate interview. I'm headlining a major progressive event in Iowa later this month, my seventh trip there. I'll be making my seventh trip to New Hampshire very shortly. And I have to say the people in Iowa and New Hampshire are very, very excited about the message that the economy has changed for good and that we need to adapt and evolve. 
Yang's message about automation and possibly also about universal basic income will continue to resonate beyond his candidacy, one in which an unknown Asian guy with no notable business successes or wealth who had never run for office was able to outlast mayors, governors, and senators. Really just remarkable and something that defied political calculations, or as Yang would maybe say, political math. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national plum pudding day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.